a lot of people do believe themselves to be in a survival state. So scientifically speaking, like neurology, right? Yeah. Shows that when you're in a survival state, there are parts of your brain that are literally shut off. Mostly the parts that will deal with good judgment and rational thinking because you're in survival state, right? If you're thinking about there's an immediate threat in front of me, you're not going to consider other options. You're going to sit there and you're going to be like, how do I deal with this threat right now? So getting people out of survival state is the biggest and most important thing if people want to start really changing their lives. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repman. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today on Truth Tastes Funny is Vin, Vincent, Vinny Infante. We give him three names because he's that good a guest, actually. So he has many facets to his personality, but actually he is a former FDNY firefighter, and he now is a resiliency expert and coach. And we're going to dive into how you bounce back and what methods you use and certainly get his side of a very interesting story. Vin, welcome to Truth Tastes Funny. Thanks for having me, Hirsch. I appreciate it. And the welcoming of the three parts of my personality, me, myself, and I. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all have it, right? I mean, we all have different facets of our personality that we call upon depending on what we're going through in the moment. Yeah, that's correct. You know, you know? definitely. So is, first of all, when you were a firefighter in New York, when was that? And just tell us a little bit about that experience. So my t total time in the fire department was about a year, roughly. Yeah. And I started in the academy right around the time I was about 28. So that was almost, that was about three years ago. And I think I got the call when I was about 27. So let's just say about four years ago or so, right? And I went in and then the pandemic hit while I was in the academy. So they actually graduated us early, which was something they didn't do since literally 9-11, because wow. obviously there was a lot of stuff going on. People were getting very sick. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody even knew what was going on. They were just giving us real-time updates. And, you know, and they were like, hey, the city needs you. Good luck and Godspeed. And that was how our academy ended. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's how we became firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So what was it like jump kind of jumping in? Well, it was, it was definitely interesting, right? Like you just, <laughs> we weren't even done with, we weren't even done with the Academy. They were like, you guys know enough. <laughs> you were like, what? But, you were uh, like, okay, okay, we're ready. We're ready. But what is this? And they'd be like, that's a hose, dude. That's a hose. <laughs> we were going to get to that. We were just about to get to that. That's how I would be as a firefighter. I would be, I am like a real turn by turn dude i like instructions that are just super clear and you know in some ways it's not a good thing because i think i second guess too much but i definitely would be that guy that would be like okay we did not cover this <laughs> you know we didn't cover this part and then it'd be like okay well trust your intuition trust your 
instinct. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, where you grew up and, and how you grew up. Well, I grew up in Staten Island, New York, and I've been here my whole life. I still live here. I quite frankly, I like it here. Yeah. And I grew up and it was a pretty interesting time for me. I got bullied a lot as a kid. I struggled a lot with depression. I struggled with anxiety. I had panic attacks. I had a lot of suicidal ideation that I was kind of dealing with. And all of these things were manifesting in the best possible ways. Like I, you know, I had this interesting realization actually it was about maybe a year or two ago is when I was younger, I would be sick a lot, right? At oh, school. Yeah. But it was interesting, right? Not really going to school. But when I was at school, I would call, I actually vividly just remembered this about a year or two ago, is that the nurse would always have to call my mom because I would have upset stomach, like, and I would have to get picked up. You know, it was all the good stuff, which I don't have to go into, right? But upset stomach, you guys could be imaginative. And so I realized my mom was getting called a lot and she would pick me up. She was a good mom. And she actually at, at times would question, like she thought I was faking. She'd be like, I don't get it. You're sick at school. And then the minute you get home, like you're this different person. And you're like, just fine. You're playing video games. You're enjoying your day. And I obviously, come on, what 13 year old is going to be like, mom, I'm having a physiological reaction <laughs> to the anxiety that I get every single day by being bullied. And that the fact that I hate being here and that this environment is just freaking full of stress and trauma for me. What 13 year old can yeah. even know or articulate that, right? So I would just be like, I don't know, mom. Like, I just don't feel good at school. And so it wasn't until about two, three years ago, I was like, oh, that's why I was always sick and in the bathroom. <laughs> well, you know, like a lot of stomach related, a lot of like st- stuff like Crohn's, I have Crohn's, right? Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it's largely dormant and definitely under control and, you know, knock on wood for that. But when I was young, when I was, you know, certainly 13, 12, 11, around there, no, I think around 12 is when it started. And I wasn't aware of any stress that I was experiencing, but clearly whatever I was going through was manifesting itself that way. But you knew you were being bullied. So was it something you talked to your mom about, your parents about being bullied? No, I mean, you you know, any bullied kid knows you don't tell adults because it always makes it worse. I, had a, yeah. I, I got this great story of when I was in middle school, this kid threw me down the steps and I told the Dean and the Dean was like, well, what happened? I said, well, I, so I started taking karate at the time. Cause I wanted to like learn how to defend myself. Cause I was always getting picked on. And so my sensei of karate, he told me, he said, Hey, you know, you got to learn to stand up to yourself. Even if the kid's bigger than you, he's like, he's like, you got to learn to really just like set boundaries. And I was like, Okay. I mean, I'm a young, impressionable 13 year old who doesn't want to get bullied. Right. So I'm like, oh, maybe what he's saying might make some sense. So this kid was like, hurry up and like telling me to hurry, you know, move down the steps. He used a a choice of colorful words, but I was like, no, I'll go when I'm ready. He's like, what'd you say? I was like, I'm going, I'm ready. He's like, no, you're going now. And he just threw me down the steps. And so I went, I told the Dean, right. I was upset. Like it hurt. It sucked. I told the Dean, the Dean like, well, what happened? So I told him verbatim that story. Like my sensei, this, this, bah. we go to the principal later for this meeting now. And so the principal says, all right, recap it for me. What happened? And he, and he looks at the Dean and asks him, he's like, you know, what did you hear about both sides? He's like, well, he's like this tough guy over here decided to start a fight with him because he thinks he's hot shit. Now that he goes to karate. <laughs> that was it. Yep. And mind you, in this was the funny part. 
in middle school, I was this tiny little kid. Yeah. And this freak of nature that was bullying me was like five foot eight. Yeah. So like in what world would that make sense? Right. But fine, let's even go with that narrative. So now the kid who was bullying me also had his friend there because his friend was partaking. So his friend backed him up. His friend was like, yeah, I saw the whole thing. He was instigating with him. We were just trying to go down the steps. He was being a jerk. Bah, 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 bah. So now I'm the troublemaker. The principal says, if I hear anything, you're both suspended, whatever. And so now it's like, even if something happens in the future, I'm known as the guy who's starting the trouble here. Right. And it's ridiculous because I was this tiny little dude. And if I told my parents, then my parents would be like, well, I'm going to call the school. And then, you know, because my mom is a very overprotective mom. And so right. there would be these moments where like, and I was getting bullied my whole life. So I would tell her, I would, you know, I've had her pick me up from parties because they were making fun of me or bullying me at the party. And I wanted to go home because why would I stay at someone's house? And I'm just getting made right. fun of. So, but then my mom would make it worse for me, right? With her good intention, she would make it worse for me by like speaking to the parents, right? And then the parents would yeah. speak to the kids. And then the kids that were already bullying me are going to bully me more. And so as a bullied kid, you learn, you do not talk to adults. They always make it worse. And so Sadly, you learn, yeah. hold it in. <laughs> Sadly, then that is so totally true because it's like the, the parent, that I remember that I remember having, you know, I'm also, I was also small and I remember the bullying experiences and feeling like the first apprehension is I hope they don't pick on me. The second one after they've already done it is wanting kind of justice naturally and wanting it to stop and maybe telling a parent. And then the next thing is the apprehension over what is this parent going to do now? Is this parent going to make it worse? So I totally remember that. And it's like you could picture like your your mom would walk could walk into the classroom and be like, who 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 hit Vinny? Who was it that hit Vinny? And I don't know your mom. I'm just doing like my own grandmother. Yeah, sure. You know, don't hit Herschel. He's little. He's little. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to get his. You know, he has big cousins. <laughs> I'm going to get his cousins to kick you to listen. But. Yeah, you, you're worried about the parents making it worse. And then when the authority figures don't believe you, that's the worst. Well, the authority it, figures can never do anything anyway, right? Like I would yeah. go, even if I went to them, they'd be like, well, you know, it's just kind of he said, she said, we didn't see it. If we don't see it, we can't do anything about it. But that's what they'll always do. They'll make it worse too, because they'll call this meeting. They'd be like, Ben's telling us that you're bullying him. And the kid would be like, no, I'm not. And then they'll be like, well, you know, we're, well, he's saying you are. Well, I'm telling you I'm not. Oh, okay. Well, listen, if anything happens, like we're kind of on the lookout for it. So, you know, make sure you two play nice. But yeah. like, what does that do? Now it just makes the bully more annoyed because he just got called out and what? Like nothing. But now he's yeah. going to like look for me in the hallway or the corner in the staircase where no one could see because that's what they're going to do. And then the same thing, the kid will hit me and I'll go, this kid hit me. Well, we still didn't see it. So yeah. like- it's just well, so useless. <laughs> also, while we're on the topic, people who are bullying, and I'm also, you know, I'm also well aware that people who are bullying may well be bullied at home. People sure. who are bullying are acting on some kind of input that's already happened that's traumatic. So they're victims too in a lot of ways. Yes. So I'm aware of all that. But I'm also aware that someone who's taking a bullying posture is perfectly capable of bullying, quote unquote, a a teacher or a principal, not, 
not physically imposing themselves, but yeah. simply manipulating and forcefully stating stuff that more timid students are not going to. And there is a natural predisposition to not respect timidity. So if right. you're timid or vulnerable, or even I should say vulnerability, right? They may not respect vulnerability historically in boys, in minorities, you know, people who are being bullied often would be expected to stand up for themselves. Like you were told, be assertive, you know, they'd be assertive. Well, I didn't tell you to throw, I didn't tell you to do it in the stairwell, you know, <laughs> right? next time don't do it in the stairwell. The guy won't throw you down the stairs when you mouth off. It's like everybody Fair. has an answer, right? Yeah, but everybody has an answer. That was the kind of bullshit answer that I would, that I was. Okay, so fast forward a little bit, because this is the bullying thing. I'm very, I'm, I've like, for whatever reason, I've connected with a lot of people who were, who have like either bully anti, you know, like anti-bully charity, you know, or organizations, people who experienced it. So coming through the high school, like the next phase of your life, what was that like? Worse. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. High school is more of the, like looking back on it, it was more of the comical bullying almost like yeah, talking yeah. about, you seen the movies where you're like, wow, look at, look at that kid. He looks ridiculous getting bullied like that. Like that was my experience. I got thrown in trash cans and stuff. So yeah. that what was wasn't... it. What was it that they seized upon? Obviously being a little smaller, but was there a thing that you knew was going to be the thing that they were going to seize on with you? Or was it the carryover middle school? You know, like what did they latch on to the bullying? Well, a lot of kids. So interestingly enough, I, I looked into this later, right after, but one in four or one in five guys grow up. And during puberty, there's always typically, actually, sorry, it's like four and five guys, sorry. Four and five guys will go ahead and get signs of during puberty, like gyno. You know what gyno is? No. I'm shortening the term. So gyno, gynoclamastia is when men during their times of testosterone developing in puberty start getting like pockets of breast tissue, okay. gynoclamastia. But it typically goes away. Like four out of five guys, even though they get it, it goes away. So I actually had it and it didn't go away. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the guys, a lot of people would tease me because one, I wasn't like massively fat, but I was a little bit chubby when I took my shirt off. And then two was that because of that, my chest looked like first it was disproportionate. Like my chest was always kind of bigger uh -huh. genetically. And then on top of that, it didn't form like a peck, right? Like it wasn't a male right, right. chest that yeah. had like it would hang down. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm probably painting a terrible image of it, but it wasn't ideal for you know, ruthless testosterone filled teenage boys. Right. And I was in an old boy school. So it was one of those things where guys would call me man tits or, or like, obviously you could see the way I look. I'm, I'm maybe a little bit looking like a Guido. So one guy called me Guido tits or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it was. And so that was like one of the main focuses, but you know, I got teased for a lot of things. I was a little bit of an awkward kid because I'd always been bullied. So I was, I, I didn't yeah. really know how to make friends. I didn't really have friends. And my idea of trying to make friends, because all I knew was video games, because I became very introverted from all the bullying. So my idea of trying to make friends would be like, I would try to invite people over my house, which was 
I didn't know, but like, apparently that was kind of like a weird thing to do. Right. Uh-huh. So I'd be like, Hey, like it's, you, we doing anything Friday night? You want to come over to my house? And what are we going to do? Oh, like we'll hang out in my basement and just play video games. And like, that was not, you know, a very normal thing. Now it's normal. Right. Right. In this right. day and age, like video games are like cool now, but I wasn't cool. That was all I knew. And so yeah, it, it was very hard to connect with people. And so there was multiple awkwardness, things like that. And then at a certain point, I probably made it worse for myself because when I knew that I was going to get bullied and like there were these kids and I was just kind of getting tired of it, I would start talking back to some of them. And uh, so that would make it worse. Yeah. Like the worst and funniest looking back, funniest experience was there was this one kid. His name's Mike. I'll spare the last name, but <laughs> probably was. Yeah. Mike was a, a football player. And he was, a, he was a pretty tough kid. He used to throw me in the trash like at, during lunchtime. And there was this one time and it was always the bathroom. Like I think it was the bathroom on the second or the third floor, whatever it was, because I would typically go to the bathroom after lunch. He happened to be in there. And if he was, he would like mess me around a little and throw me in the trash. So one day I was coming like I was, I think I was, I don't know if I was going in the bathroom or coming out of it, whatever. And I was like right there and Mike turned the corner. And so I saw him and I saw, but he had a little distance. So now me, instead of like, oh, I'm going to try and run away. I, I was, I ran into the bathroom and I was like, Hey, F you, Mike. I was like, you ain't going to do shit to me today. And I ran in the bathroom. <laughs> that was stupid of me. Right. Cause obviously yeah. that annoyed him, but I thought I was smart. And so I run in the bathroom and I locked the stall and, you know, I just, it was just one of those little latches. You just slid, uh-huh. right? And so I locked the stall. And Mike's like, you better come out of there. Or I'm going to beat the shit out of you. I was like, screw you, Mike. There's nothing you could do. I'm in the stall. The door is locked. And if you try to come under, I'm going to kick you in the face until you fucking bleed. Like I was pissed, right? Right. Because I was just, I was tired of dealing with this kid. And Mike says, you have to the count of three to come out. I said, you can do whatever you want, Mike. You're not coming in. And I will literally f- claw your face if you try. As I figured, I it, right, I what is he going to do? He's going to have to come under. So yeah. he counts to three and he rams his shoulder as hard as he could into the door. And I shit you not, Hirsch, the door just unlatched and slowly swung open like in a movie. And I was just like, oh, oh shit. He grabbed me and, he, and he's just like, Ugh. He grabbed me out of the stall. He like threw me around the bathroom, shoved me in the trash and then pushed me down. So I couldn't even get out. And I had to like do one of those like kind of wobbly things where my right. legs were in the to air. Get and to get it to fall down out. so you could get out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I could make the trash fall down. <laughs> and, yeah. and then I like kind of crab crawled out of it. And that, I mean, that was me being a jerk. I definitely instigated that one. But you know, you're tired of it. Like if I'm going to get thrown in the trash, I might as well try and fight him at least, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> the, the self-defense anger. Th- I totally like I remember this, too. It probably was seventh grade and the, the uh, taller kid who was a real jerk. And by the way, when you're tall, it's no like if you're not a big, tough guy, but you're tall, it's no fun either because people make fun of you. So there was this kid who was tall and kind of awkward, but he was he had been like bullying me. I don't know why pushing. He was insecure about something, pushing me around. And I just had that same thing where I lost my temper and I just charged at him as hard as I could from where I was standing. And he fell back into a garbage can and had that experience where he ended up with his hands and feet sticking out of the garbage can. <laughs> but the thing is, whatever he did wasn't didn't warrant that. 
it's just I had been so tired of the getting pushed around that I saw mm. this guy whose balance was not going to be as solid as the as the you know what we would call a bull von big big kind of you know like a bull type yeah. of uh guy so i took i to seize my moment now then you get labeled as having been a crazy person or don't mess with hirsch he's a little psycho right and it's it's like okay i'll take that i'll do that then i'll be the little psycho that you shouldn't mess with if that's going to be the case you know yeah yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny, right? Because as I've learned a lot more about psychology and how people work and humans work, right? Because anger is actually directly tied to sadness in some way, uh -huh. shape or form. Like if you, if you were to lift up the rug of anger, there's always some form of sadness hiding under there. And so what we do is in a bid to stop being helpless and weak and hopeless, because that's also what sadness typically ties into, right? There's a level of like a helplessness there or a hopelessness or a whatever. And so when you try to stop being weak, you want to become strong. Yeah. Anger is one of our easiest and most direct ways to become strong when we don't feel it. And so that's what eventually winds up happening with a lot of people who are tired of feeling weak. They just, they get angry because yeah. that's the only way they see it. It's like, you know what? I'm tired of this. And, and the body's always looking to achieve a balance, like a homeostasis almost. And so it's like, hey, we're tired of feeling sad. Can we do something else? Like maybe we could just get angry now. And then you're like, oh yeah, this actually, this feels good. This feels better than what I was experiencing. So we'll cling to that. We'll be like, yeah. And then anger could become a drug. Yeah. So what was going on at home during these times? What was the home life like? Home life was okay. It was more of me kind of doing my own thing. And then there were, you know, there were a few things more so where my brother was causing a little bit of trouble in the home. He was a rambunctious teenager. And so mm -hmm. my parents were more busy dealing with him. And so it was a little bit easier for me to hide my stuff because I would just kind of come home and play video games and they would be dealing with the stupid crap he was doing. So <laughs> it, made, it made it easy for me to sink. Yeah, but that made you then like feel like I can't really bring up my shit because they're dealing with this. So they're not going to be receptive maybe to hearing me complain or maybe I'm well, better. I don't know. What were you feeling? I don't need to really guess. You can just tell me. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't want to tell my parents anyway, right? Like as we were yeah. talking about, I've already learned adults make everything worse. So I, I didn't want to tell them regardless right. of what whatever my brother was doing. I will say the benefit of my brother being stupid was... <laughs> was that it kept me on a more straight and narrow path. I actually didn't have a rebellious stage until I was like 23 because that's when my brother's life was in order and together. And I was like, oh, good, my turn. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, was... <laughs> okay, well, so tell me what was college like? I like going in a little bit of a linear order because it really is going to lead us to, you know, how you're helping people now. But mm. what, so what was the college what happened there? Because there's another transition where we try to like set right what's been going, what's been yeah. going wrong. So right. what was your transition like? So college was better, but worse. And that's okay. that. Okay. Right. And it, it makes no sense, but it will in a second. It was better because after high school and all of this stuff that I 
I was dealing with, I was at that point where I was like, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Something has to change. So I changed everything external. I started working out. I went to an old boy high school and it was a Catholic school. And so they always used to force us to shave, like be well-groomed men, right? Specific mm -hmm. haircut, shave, uniform, etc. So now coming out of that, I was like, I want to kind of reinvent myself a bit. So I grew a beard, changed my haircut, got different clothes. And then as I started working out, I guess, so college was my glory years, right? Yeah. Like college was, I did not do well in my teen, in my early teens. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have friends going into college. I guess I had what the kids call a glow up. Yeah. <laughs> and that's right. where I, I started becoming attractive. Right. And so attractive in all senses. All right. I started gaining friends. Women started becoming interested in me. I, I didn't know it because I never really interacted with women, but they were interested in her. So I promise. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> the guys were a lot cooler. They responded to me differently because I maybe I was cool or whatever. And then I made a really subtle shift where on my college transcripts, instead of writing Vincent, which is my legal given name, I wrote Vincenzo because wow. it was the creating creation of a persona. I didn't like Vincent. I didn't like the experiences Vincent had. I didn't like being Vincent. In my mind, everything that had to do with Vincent sucked. So I didn't want to be that guy anymore. So I became Vincenzo. And so things started to go better. I became a personal trainer at a gym. I was working there. I was getting my uh, full-time undergrad in psych. And I also got a part-time job working as a mental health worker at a hospital. And, and that would be full-time in the summer and part-time during the year. So I maintained two jobs, went to college full-time, did all this cool stuff. I really excelled in, in my undergrad in the sense that I graduated in Psychi National Honor Society. I was crushing it. I got accepted to every master's program I applied for and everything looked great, right? Yeah. However, I was really still very depressed. I was having a lot of identity issues. I was still trying to figure myself out. And I really couldn't. Now, at 23, as I went into my master's program, things were really hard and it was a lot harder to maintain. I was actually having like what I would describe as mental breakdowns, like once every few months, like if we had to go quarterly, let's just say once a quarter, I would just have like a complete, like, I want to quit everything in life. I want to quit my jobs. I want to quit school. I hate everything. I don't want to do anything. Like to me, that's a mental breakdown, right? Because it's just, everything is like done. Yeah. No. And so 23 was the 23 was the year I graduated, right? So those two years of my master's program was really, really hard. I feel like I got through that by the skin of my teeth, not because I didn't know the materials. I knew the materials. It's just everything in life felt so hard because everything was worse in here. I was having panic attacks more often. I pretty much had my therapist on speed dial because I literally could not make a decision without his input because I didn't trust myself nearly enough to do yeah. so. Right. And so this was a really detrimental time to my mental health where I didn't even really know what to do. And I have to thank my dad because my dad took a little bit of a strong arm approach with me. I was like, dad, I'm going to drop out of college. He's like, if you're going to drop out of college, you better get a full-time job because I'm not supporting your ass. And I was like, I'm yeah. staying in college. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it, it was, it was a really interesting time for me. And I just remember that being one of the harder moments of my life at, at least at that time because of it. Yeah. So, uh, cause I, I had wanted to actually go back and touch on the very serious issues that you had as a younger child, you know, as a kid. Sure. Because you had mentioned all of the kind of, you know, the ideations and all of that stuff. And 
but they weren't really addressed. So mm. nothing had ever been really addressed, right? Like nothing, like you didn't go to therapy, you weren't, or were you, did you have any therapy as a kid, you know, when you were in middle school or high school? I had always, so I had never fit in. So I had always been in, with guidance counselors. Okay. Like I was never a part, let's just take middle school, for example. I was never a part of robotics club which they had, which a lot of schools probably have it now, yeah. right? Yeah. You just make robots and all sorts of electronic things. I was never a part of a robotics club, but the robotics teacher would allow me during lunchtime to come sit in his class. There's, that's where the robotics kid club would hang out during right. lunch. And he would just allow me to be there. And then if I wasn't there, I would go sit in the guidance office and I would just, sometimes I would eat lunch in there. Sometimes I would eat in the cafeteria, but I didn't like it there. You know, I always had stuff happen to me in the cafeteria. I get bullied. I'll never forget. I made, there was this one time I made a trade with Yu-Gi-Oh cards with this one kid during lunch. And I was super excited. I got this great card. And I think he gave me a card in like 20 bucks because I gave him a really good card. Yeah. Right? I went, I got my lunch. I came back, the money and the card was stolen. And I'm sure he was probably him. Right. Yeah. But that was the stuff. So I would avoid that place like the plague because that wasn't my spot. So I never, I would really like shelter away and hang out with adults in high school. I started seeing a therapist who was a good guy, but he didn't really help me much. And I was at a Catholic school. So I would talk to the priest, but the priest, priest didn't really know much. However, the one person that actually gave me a lot of guidance and a lot of help who I had a lot of appreciation for and admiration for too, because he had a really interesting story of life, which he would share with me often was my principal. Mm -hmm. So he knew my family because my brother was in a different high school that he came from. And so he already kind of knew a little bit about our life. Like I walked into high school on my first day. He's right. like, I know your family. I was like, uh -huh. I don't know you. And right. so, <laughs> and so we kind of built a little bit of a bond because he already knew about my family. And so I would spend time in his office just talking about things. And one day he actually gave me a suicide assessment because I was so depressed. I like walked in. I was just like, I was like, Hey, I was like, I was like, how's your day? I was like, I, it's not good. He's like, well, what's going on? I was like, man, I, I was like, I just don't want to be here anymore. He's like, why you want to leave school? I was like, no, like I don't want to live anymore. And so then he just like slid a piece of paper across the desk and he looked at me and he was very stern. He's like, where are you on here? And I looked down and it just said like ideation planning attempts. Right. You know, and I pointed to like ideation, but I started crying because it's like, nobody wants to admit that you're sitting there constantly thinking about your own death. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of my experience as I was growing up. I was always kind of seeing somebody, but never really got any help. Right. Yeah. So then at 20, what happens? 23 was my life changing moment. Yeah. So we're at the good stuff. Finally, you're li if your listeners are still here, <laughs> this gonna, is the stuff well, that put, well, we have timestamps, you know, the way the way we do it is we have a timestamp so <laughs> in big, bold letters, the mark that we're at. I don't know how many minutes we're into our interview, but at that mark, we will have, you know, 23 and me, 23, yeah. <laughs> 23. Well, one chapter will be the glow up. So that's promising. Yeah. You know, another one will be probably the blow up. But then there's, OK, so let's say we're at 23. And here's where something starts to look up. I mean, you did it, it did look up in college in a lot of ways, but you were still struggling. Correct. So okay. 23 was the life-changing trajectory that made me the man or started, started making me the man that's here talking to you right. today. And so 
at 23 years old, I graduated with my master's. I can't really verify this, but it, it's my belief that I was like the youngest person in the school to get their master's. I went straight through college. I, I did the summers. Like I was hard yeah. into it, man. I just wanted to get my life started. And so at 23, when I graduated, what I did first was I quit both of my jobs. I was like, I'm done being a personal trainer. I'm done being a, a mental health worker. In fact, I'm done doing everything. I just, I'm just chilling. I, yeah. I, I need to figure something out because there's still a lot of stuff wrong in here in my mind. And so I started just doing kind of whatever I wanted. Now I had money in the bank. I went out, I got myself a nice new Camaro gift to myself. Why not? And I was just living my life. I was going hiking midweek. This was now almost the summertime, right? Graduating May, mm -hmm. we're talking June. So just living my best life, trying to figure me out. And then what wound up happening was I, I couldn't. I was still experiencing like anxiety and depression. And, and now it was like, I have a hot girlfriend. I got a cool car. I'm a cool guy. I got tattoos. I have all these awesome things, which seemingly people would say like, you should be happy. And I was like, I agree. I should be happy, but I'm not. Why? And so I was fed up. It's a summer day. I'm at my parents' house. I was still living there. And I go in the bathroom and I slam my hands on the counter. And I'm like, what is wrong? Why am I still like this? Why am I still anxious and angry and upset and saying all this other crap? And I couldn't figure it out. And then I looked up at myself and I looked in the mirror and I looked right in my eye and I was like, oh my God, you're Vincent. That was the first time in seven years that I said my own name. The oh, first wow. time. And that was so powerful because that was me finally willing to accept myself, finally not trying to create and be someone else and finally choosing me for the first time in God knows how long. Yeah. And what that did was that then set forth a chain of events, which are some concepts that I mainly discuss on how people can transform their life. These concepts are leading into, so radical self-acceptance was that piece, right? Your Vin that like period there's yeah, nobody yeah. else you're not vincenzo you're vincent and that was the acceptance of that then number two was getting really raw and honest with myself where i was just like dude look at you i was like you're weak you're depressed people pity you no one admires you no one would be inspired by you no one would follow you you can't lead others you can't even lead yourself you're hopeless you're helpless like this is who you want to be and I was like, God, no, this is awful. <laughs> My yeah. life sucks. Right. And, and then I asked a better question and I said, well, who do you want to be? And so that's where I kind of just went on this tangent now. And I'm like, I want to be this inspiring, excitable, lovable, empathetic leader. I want to be powerful. I want to help others. I want to like change the world. And, and, and I was like, well, that's great. How do you plan to do that? And so I was like, well, my life has been the way it's been because of the choices I've made. The trajectory of my life can be variously different if I make different choices now. So if I know I want to be all of these things, what would somebody who is those things start doing, thinking, acting as, becoming? Like, what would they say? How would they think? And so what I did was a really powerful, like, identity shift. I took yeah. ownership from my past being the way it was, my present being the way it was, and owning and willing to create the life that I'm about to create, Right. And so extreme ownership, radical self-acceptance, I'd say that identity shift is what I talk about with leadership. Leadership is not a title or position. It's a presence you bring into this world. It's how you show up in the roles you show up as 
and what you want to be known as. And then that last piece is mindset mastery, where it was the understanding that I can only control five things in life. I can only control what I'm going to say, think, do, feel, and what my behaviors are. And so once I know I can only do those five things, that's how I start moving forward with my life. And so at 23, I had that kind of, I guess, epiphany from that moment in the mirror. Now, I didn't know all of those things. This is retrospectively, I learned these things. Yeah. And so at 23, I took my life back, walked into my therapist's office, told them my last day here is right now in this session, and I'm going to go figure my life out. And I did just that. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, you know, I think that so that speaks to the mindset, you know, piece. So you had this revelation that you weren't it wasn't about escaping, you know, who who you were. It was about accepting who you were. But as we all know, a lot of this stuff is even when we know intellectually that something is needed we have to get to a place where we actually believe it, where we actually can implement it. So how did you go about figuring yourself out? You knew what you wanted to get to at that Mm. point. What were the steps that you took and what are the steps you now walk, you know, walk clients through? So transformation, lasting transformation, I've come to understand is not done in the conscious mind. It's all done in the subconscious. And your subconscious is governed by your belief systems and your belief systems are governed by your identities or the identity main one or small ones, right? Because we have multiple identities, right? Like I'm a son and I'm a father. Those are two different identities, right? So they're going to govern two things I do. Like for instance, I will call my mom. I will consider my mother. I will spend time with her. I will aim to be a good son. And then on my other identity as a dad, when I'm with my daughter, I'm going to aim to be a good dad. I'm going to check in on her. I'm going to take care of her. I'm going to be responsible for her. I'm not responsible for my mom though, right? Because these are different identities and different ways I show up. So it's very important to get clear on the identity you want to hold. Now, a lot of people think they have to chase things. And a lot of people are very concerned with the whole fake it till you make it. And I'll say, well, if you want to be happy, just be happy. And like, well, that feels very inauthentic. I'm like, why? Don't you say you want to choose happiness? Yes, but I don't feel happy right now. Okay, that's fair. How do you start feeling happy? If you don't embrace it as a part of the identity you want to have, right? At what point do you say you'll start feeling happy? Because happiness is also a choice, right? I, yeah. and, and I try to also get, to get people to understand it's not just everything is emotions, right? Because emotions aren't real. They're just indicators. Like feelings aren't facts. They're indicators of something else. To me, happiness isn't just an emotion. It's a way of life. It's how you look at things. It's how you choose to decipher things. It's your perception of the world that will either make you happy or sad. Doesn't mean I'm walking around smiling all day, but I would say I'm 95% happy. Like my entire life is 95% I'm happy, but I'm 95% happy because I do things in alignment with things that serve a positive view of the world. Yeah. Right. So that positive view of the world comes from me because we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. So I determine I want to be happy. So if I want to be happy, what I'm going to focus on are very different things than if you want to be miserable. And people say, well, I don't want to be miserable. It's like, yes, you do, because you keep focusing on it. But you're focused on it because you're unaware that that's what your belief system supports, because that's your subconscious mind based on the identity you hold. So everything is about 
the identity you are embracing and the identity you want to become. Now, the last piece that I will say is people think, and I, and I touched on this before and deviated, but people think you have to chase this. You have to chase happiness. You have to chase yeah. these things, but you don't. First, you have to believe it. Then you have to become it. Then the world sees it. And so people get concerned because other people are going to make comments. Like right. if you're like, oh, I'm a happy person. When are you happy? You're always miserable. Oh, and now, and now you shrink and you're like, oh, yeah, he's right. Like I am always miserable. So maybe that's me. That's not you. That's who you've been. But you just made the choice. You want to be happy. So you're going to start being happy. And then in six months, eight months, a year, two years, eventually that same person is going to be like, Vin's always happy. You know, Vin, I remember a time where you were always miserable. But like, dude, you're always happy now. Right. Sure. That's true. Because that was an identity I held. This was the identity I choose to embody. And now it's who I am. But that's always the thing, right? You have to grow into that person. And you'll do it in here before the rest of the world can see you. So people will in, unintentionally shrink you back into your box if you allow them. That's where people have trouble transforming. Because they're like, oh, well, everyone knows me as miserable. So if I come out and I'm just like, hey, what a great day. They're like, right. what the hell? That's not normal for you. Yeah, it's okay. I'm breaking the mold. I refuse to be miserable. Now I'm going to start being happy. And people don't know how to actually just be okay with that shift. It's very hard for people because we cling to our identities. And our subconscious mind looks to make us consistent with who we believe ourselves to be. So as you're trying to break out of this box, everyone wants to remind you that's not who you are. And they don't do it with malice most of the time, right? They'll just be like, yeah. I've never seen you happy. That's a shitty comment that someone will give you because they just know you as miserable and they're not trying to remind you you're a miserable person, but that's what it is in essence. Well, it's not even a shitty comment because they're they're actually saying that you're happy. But to your point, I think they will believe it when they see it actually. And so, you know, you, we all have friends, we've all done this, where we tell people what we're going to do. I'm not eating bread anymore. I'm not going to, I'm determined to lose 10 pounds. I'm going to stand up for my, I'm going to become more assertive. It's all those protestations that we make that probably are not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to, because if it were going to happen, we wouldn't say anything. Yeah, we would just change our behaviors. We would just do what we're doing until it takes and then when it takes, people will have to get used to it. But, but that resiliency to be able to withstand the doubt that we've conditioned people to have, you know, is that core thing. Now, you also talk about we only have a few minutes left, but and I'm going to turn it over to you for some messaging. But you also mentioned rapid results in some cases. How, mm. So because we think of this as daunting, as a very, as possibly a very low transformation is not instantaneous, right? But when you refer to rapid change or rapid results, what are you talking about? So we believe that transformation isn't instantaneous because that's the lie we've been told. If you think about it, change actually happens in an instant. It's the process that gets the change, which could take time. And that's yeah. determined by us right? I'll give you a quick example. You want to marry someone. What's the moment that you're married? The minute you say, I do. The minute you sign the paper. Yeah. But the time leading up to that is, is the process. But the change occurs at that instant. Now, the question is, how long do you want to take until you get married? Some people would date for five years. Some people date for 10. I've known people who have dated for two months and they got married. 
Yeah. So does change actually take a lot of time? It does not. It is instant. It's the process that takes time. Now you get to determine the process. So that is where I talk about rapid results because you get to determine how long you want to take until you are ready to achieve the change you seek. Why? Again, do you want to embrace a different identity or not? How often are you going to pull yourself back into what you believe to be true, right? Because everything's belief systems. The only reason you might think the world sucks and I might think it's great is because we have different belief systems. So how long until you want to join me on this, on this idea that the world is great? How much do you need as proof, right? Mm -hmm. How much do you want to cling to your old beliefs? And, and this is where it gets a little sticky too, is because all of our beliefs serve a purpose. We do everything because everything that we're doing has helped us in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Even if it's providing us with a negative outcome, there's a positive intent behind the behavior or the belief we have. And if you can't find that positive intent, and that's what the biggest aim of my work is, if you can't find the positive intent behind the behavior, you can't let it go because the behavior is serving a purpose. So if we don't replace it with something that serves a similar purpose or a better purpose, you're going to keep utilizing it because it's still valuable to you. So I help people understand why their behaviors are valuable to them and how a different behavior could be more valuable. And that's actually the transformation. Yeah, that's pretty cool because that's like a principle of sales. You're giving them value. You're showing them the value in what you're offering or what's available to them as mm. opposed to a platitude about, you know, self-actualization, right and wrong you know, mental health even. So now we've gone through this whole, we actually have gone through the transformation, you know, story-wise. What would your thought be to leave the, the listeners with, especially coming from the point of view of a crazy world and trying to survive it and coming through hopefully better, you know, into better times, but still chaotic, still incredibly chaotic. What, thoughts in terms of resiliency would you like to offer? So I think one of the biggest things is that the problem is a lot of people do believe themselves to be in a survival state. So scientifically speaking, like neuro neurology, right? Yeah. Shows that when you're in a survival state, there are parts of your brain that are literally shut off. Mostly the parts that will deal with good judgment and rational thinking because you're in survival state, right? If you're thinking about there's an immediate threat in front of me, you don't, you're not going to consider other options. You're going to sit there and you're going to be like, how do I deal with this threat right now? So getting people out of survival state is the biggest and most important thing. If people want to start really changing their lives, resiliency is that ability, in my opinion, to bounce out of survival state and into that executive state where you're kind of sitting there. And now you're actually able to get more creative because in that state, what you're able to do is you're able to access the parts of your brain that are being shut off, the parts of your body, right? That are being shut off. Your adrenal glands aren't pumping anymore. You're not in this fight or flight mode. You're in this ability to actually be at a state where your brain is able to be creative. It's able to start relaxing. It's able to give you the ability to really get into this place where now you can create a life you want. So the curiosity might be, how do you get there? Well, stop focusing on things that you are perceiving as a threat. And what I mean is don't ignore them, right? But for instance, if there's a threat right in front of you and you're just staring like there's a killer in front of you, instead of staring at the killer, right? Because this would be stupidity. Instead of staring at the killer, wouldn't you kind of like try to dart your eyes around the room and say like, all right, is there a way out of this room? 
Yeah. Like, can I do something? But see, that's the thing. In survival state, you're just staring at the killer. And that makes no sense. You're like, okay, let me just stare at this guy. He's got a knife. Like, how do you get out of that? You don't. But <laughs> if you say, hold on, hold on. And this is this is where the, the key is. People need to remind themselves. The room is bigger than you think. The room is bigger than the killer in front of you. What's around you? So now this is helping people get present. Look around you. What's there? A lot of people don't lack resources. They lack resourcefulness. So you could say, all right, there's a killer in front of me. I might lack a knife, but if I'm resourceful, I'm aware there's a window next to me. I could possibly jump out. There's a car out that window I could land on, which will break my fall. And if I roll onto it the proper way, then I could possibly get away from this killer right now, as opposed to just standing here, staring at this man with a knife. And so being able to get out of this scarcity and into resourcefulness by asking better questions, who has what I need? Who can help me get what I need? What's something I could do right now to start taking more control over my life? What are the better things I could think about and focus on? If I'm focused on this, but this isn't helping me, what would I rather focus on that would get me here? And start really looking at these better questions that will challenge you to come out of survival and start getting into creativity. The brain has actually been shown. There's a part in the brain somewhere in the front. I can't remember the name of it. There's a really cool podcast by a Huberman Lab on it. There's him oh, and yeah. Jordan Peterson. They were talking about it, right? And there's this part of the brain that comes up with outcomes. And the, they're, what they're finding is that it actually could come up with an unlimited amount of outcomes for any situation. So if you're sitting here and you're feeling stuck, what that means is you're not in that executive state, you're in survival, you're not able to access that part of your brain that could come up with unlimited outcomes, right? And so now what's going on is you need to get into that. You need to get into that access. So you need to come out of survival and you need to give yourself that peace so that you can get creative and start getting resourceful. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.